Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision, the FinTech Fuse. This is Theo, your host for the episode. Now, we're going to do things slightly differently today because you actually see me and our guest on the show. Um, so joining us today is Nashley Cephas, or Dr. Nashley Cephas, Principal AI and ML Tech Evangelist from AWS. Welcome to the show, Nashley. Hello, hello. Hello. So this is super exciting. I love, I love this topic and I, I can't wait to hear more um, from you. But before we start, can you tell us a little bit more about your career journey and what is it like? I, I often wonder when people say they're a tech evangelist, what does your day to day look like? Yeah, so I, I remember when I first got the role of tech evangelist and I was wondering the same thing, the exact same thing. So I started out as an applied scientist um, in AI. I was worked on other teams, like the shopping app was actually the result of uh, my one of my uh, startup companies I was a CTO for got acquired by Amazon. So that's how I came to Amazon. And so about three years into my tenure at Amazon, I switched over to AWS uh, and started focusing on responsible AI, such as uh, face recognition technologies and um, public policy and things like that, and doing more um, engagement and outreach outside of uh, what I would normally do as a scientist, which was run experiments and do research and train models and uh, manage, manage people. And so I started doing so much more of the, um, you know, the communication side, the um, doing workshops and trainings to people of all different audiences, all different backgrounds um, outside of the company. And so they would send me to go to these different places to talk and speak. And um, apparently I had a knack for doing that, explaining technical content to non-technical people. And so uh, I remember my, my VP at the time, she said, why don't you just be a tech evangelist? And I was like, oh, okay, so that's what they, that's what they do. And she said, yeah, pretty much. And so that's kind of how I got that position. That's kind of some of the things that I do. Uh, more specifically, I focus on responsible AI within AWS on our team that works across all of our services, um, uh, doing audits for all of our services, evaluating uh, for various biases, fairness, and all sorts of responsible AI things that we can talk about uh, in a minute here. But and then I uh, assist with that, provide some technical expertise and advisement and, and continue to just do more things actually like this and speaking to audiences from public policy members, members of Congress to uh, college students. Wow. I, this is fascinating because you actually can straddle all different sides of the conversation, right? You know, being able to talk technical at the same time, being able to talk to people that needs to have their voice at the table. Yeah, that's so much. Yeah, and I, yeah, no, I, I think so too. I think the similar in the way that generative AI took off with, uh, basically the reason it took off was because when we had the, the tools to be able to create the technology, uh, we've made a lot of advancements in the last five, 10 years for AI to move a lot faster, to store a lot more data, but more so the interfacing. And so when you have a tool that has this great interface on top that's easy to use. Uh, my grandmother can use it. Um, my uh, cousin in the in the fifth grade can use it. And everyone understands what I mean when I say AI now. Now that wasn't the case 
you know, even just a year ago. And so I'm, I'm grateful that uh, we're in this uh, area where everyone's involved in the conversation. I, I can't agree more. Um, I had to chuckle because often I think the one challenge that I have now is telling people, yes, this is all cool, but this is really not magic. There's, you know, <laughs> there's something behind it. There's logic behind it. Um, but it yeah. is really interesting and how I, I think the last year, as you said, the technology is now in the hands of everyone, right? That they can get to experiment with that. And and with that, I do want to ask you something I spotted um, that you had posted on Amazon Science as well as on LinkedIn. I do look at people's LinkedIn posts. Um, and you said in there, quote, I'm a black woman with a Southern accent who has been immersed in machine learning technologies as both a scientist and a consumer. I want to ask you, what surprised you the most in the last two decades in, in this particular era of artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think what, what surprised me is, oh man, just how far we've come in terms of the innovation and the accessibility I remember what I, what I was thinking when I uh, started that quote, but I, uh, when I was in undergrad, um, I interned at a, a, a Delphi, which was a, a, the company at the time that made the Bluetooth radios in the, uh, in the cars. And so the Toyota Camrys back in 20, 2009, 2010 is when it was actually released, but I was, I was there in 2007, uh, no, 2008. And so, uh, you know, this was new technology. And so being able to dial a phone number through your radio was like a big thing back then. And so they would use my voice to dial numbers. Um, they would use my voice because it was such a different accent than what they've been used to. A lot of the data sets that are used in speech technology are often created uh, with accents from apparently the Midwest. Um, actually, Nebraska apparently has the most uh, the least inflection, so basically the most, uh, for lack of a better word, monotone way of talking. And so a lot of databases were based on that uh, historically. And even uh, uh, people who are in journalism and, and on the news, they learn how to speak like those people and speak in that sort of accent. And so that's how they learn. And so uh, meteorologists and everything. And so um, when I would come and try to, when they would try to test the radio, and I'm saying, you know, numbers like six and, and in my accent, it would, it would never recognize those numbers. And so it reminded me of, you know, how far we've come and where I used to think, okay, it's okay for technology not to recognize me or not to uh, identify, you know, my, my, my face or um, a lot of backlight and, and darken um, for my pictures. But that's not the norm. It's not the way it should be. And so what, what has surprised me more is that we have moved from this place of where, oh, it just doesn't work for me. And that's the norm to a place where, oh, this doesn't work for me. What can we do about this? Because um, if, at least it should work uh, within some degree of similarity of error for many different types of groups of people that the technology is being used on. And so... Um, I like to think of it as I was a, a little part of that, that Bluetooth radio research back then. So. I love everything that you just said, and I can completely relate to it, especially with the yeah. home devices at home. 
half yep. the time ignores me because I'm pretty soft-spoken. And the other part of the time when it does acknowledge me, it gets completely messed up. It didn't, it couldn't understand what I was saying at, because like, especially towards the evening, I do have a stronger accent than I normally do. And I have so much trouble with the devices and I still do, um, to the point it's sad to say, like you said, I actually have to adjust how I speak to it to, to have it work, but it shouldn't be like that. Right. Just like what you were saying, these things, it should just work. And if it doesn't work and kudos to you, I love what you just said, what can we do about it? How can we make it work for more people? Because technology needs to work for more people instead of just a few. And I did not know about the Nebraska. Now I know. Interesting. I learned something new this morning. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, his, historically, that's the case. I hope. I hope it's not still the case. But, but yeah, that that was what we learned in grad school. So yeah. Wow. I wouldn't be surprised if it's still similar though, because um, I know my. I have two kids, and I know my daughter. Um, she struggles with the devices just like I do, and she's also self-spoken. And um, my boy doesn't have that trouble, so I do wonder. <laughs> So earlier in the conversation, you touched upon responsible AI, and there is so much conversations and focus on how can we be more responsible when we innovate. I want to hear from you, from your perspective, how would you define responsible AI? And, and, and I, I get this question a lot and people talking about, well, we need to be responsible when we think about innovation, when we think about who the technology serves. But then we also need to think about profitability, time to market, and then we have, you know, the whole conversation about safety. So how, how can you balance between all of these? Yeah, so there, uh, and that's, the key word, like you said, is balance. There's always, uh, there's so many components. Uh, and I, I'll tell you a little bit more how we, at least at AWS in my role, um, it's very difficult to, you know, have a hundred percent, um, in every single area in every single pillar, every single dimension of responsible AI. So you have to understand your use case and then understanding what are the implications of the trade-offs that you're making, because sometimes you can have, uh, a little bit less accuracy if it means you're a little bit more safe or maybe uh, if you can um, determine if you can be a little bit more explainable with your algorithm like if i'm denied for a loan i'm going to want to know why if you use an algorithm i'm going to want to know why if you can't explain that that's a bigger uh you know implications of, of, of the impact is a little bit worse on the customer and so you just gotta know what is your customer, what is your end user, um, how does that affect them if you were to do worst case in each of these dimensions of responsible AI, and and what how does it impact them if, if you had the best case? And so we like to define responsible AI uh, in a few different ways. Um, so uh, you mentioned privacy and security, so that obviously has been something at the forefront. Uh, cybersecurity now more than ever is uh, very relevant. So when it comes to AI, um, just making sure are we protecting the data um, 
is it private data? Is it personal identifiable information? Um, how can we take that and just, uh, you know, earn that trust with the customer so they know that, hey, your data is safe. Um, uh, information that is in the hands of these people that doesn't need to get into the hands of these people, we have all of that covered. Um, and that's something that we try to emphasize, especially in healthcare applications or in um, uh, similar applications where you have personal human data. Uh, we also like to define it in the area of controllability. Um, do we have certain mechanisms uh, to monitor and steer uh, the AI's system behavior? So um, a lot of people think, think about, you know, the killer robots, you know, and, and taking over and, and harming people. And, you know, have we actually put in safeguards um, and guardrails to make sure that the technology doesn't overstep what we anticipated or what we planned or trained it to do. Uh, also fairness, of course, we wanna make sure that uh, the system performs equally across uh, different types of groups and different subgroups. And if it doesn't perform equally, or at least not a huge disparity of performance issues, do we, do we know why? And are we transparent about it? Transparency is another uh, pillar of responsible AI. Are we ensuring that stakeholders and customers and end users know uh, exactly where we perform the best and exactly where we don't, don't perform the best and what is not the intended use of this product. I do so many talks and people uh, interact with a lot of our customers and people that use the technology, um, and specifically AWS builds tools that other people use to build other things. And so you have a middle person and then an end user and then another end user at the end of that. And so people will, Usually nine times out of 10, they will always use your technology in a way you never expected them to. And the only way we know that is if we have a conversation, if we have some sort of input or feedback uh, system that we're monitoring um, our technology as it's being deployed. Um, explainability is another one. Uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, if I'm denied for a long, am I able to explain why? Uh, but not so explainable to where, you know, like you mentioned, um, as a company, we make our business out of selling some be so explainable where someone can reverse engineer uh, what we're doing. And so there's a level of a silver lining there. Um, there's also robustness. Are you testing uh, your algorithms in a way that you, you know that people will use it in an adversarial way? And, uh, you know, people will use uh, a picture of my face to unlock my phone. Um, have you tested that? versus it actually being a real face to unlock my phone. And we're being intentional because again, people will use your technology in different ways that you never intended. Um, and then lastly, we like to sum it up with governance. So how do we ensure everyone's doing what they should be doing across this entire um, evaluation system, across the entire development cycle, life cycle of this technology? Um, because, you know, you don't want uh, these people to you know, leak some data to these people, and then um, you're able, you're not able to, you know, fully uh, train your model in a way uh, that is, you know, private. And so there's, there's so many, uh, you know, angles to that. But when we define responsible AI, we like to think of it as a multifaceted, multidimensional um, considerations. So thank you so much for elaborate, elaborating on all of those different pillars, if you will, of responsible AI. A lot of that resonate, but talk us through a little bit more about what are some of the tools and capabilities that 
AW has to enable all of the different pillars of responsible AI that you were just talking about? Yeah, so we, we have uh, several resources and tools. So um, the first the first major tool was uh, a, a tool called SageMaker Clarify. And so SageMaker is a tool on AWS that builders use to train models and deploy models, uh, AI models. And so uh, Clarify is an extra layer uh, for certain types of models. Uh, you're able to uh, get understand there any bias in the data sets. You can monitor your model over time uh, to see if there's any uh, model drift, such as if biases are introduced after the model has been deployed. Um, and there's also just ways to just track, um, you know, how your model improves over time as you continue to update it and, you know, train. And second tool that we have, we have a responsible AI uh, website um, on the AWS site um, that just explains all, all the things that I've talked about, um, uh, the different pillars, the different dimensions of responsible AI, how we approach each of them. Um, and then, of course, since we have over 200 AI uh, tools, which each of those tools under AWS has could have multiple models, so we're, uh, you know, evaluating all of our models in different ways. And we have this thing called the AI service, uh, AWS service cards um, that help you. It's kind of like a mod, uh, report card for the service. Um, and this is a derivation of what we call model cards, which was first introduced a few years ago um, by Margaret Mitchell at Google and her team, uh, which is like a report card for your AI model. And so we have that for several of our services, including uh, transcribe, recognition, space matching. Uh, we released a few more. Uh, we have our uh, bedrock um, generative AI tool um, with our Titan uh, model. And so these are tools and uh, service cards that you can read more about those products, how they were developed, what's the intended use, what's not the intended use, um, get a little bit more information about uh, the performance. Education is, uh, in my uh, opinion, the easiest way to scale and help other people understand how to build better, more responsible AI products. And so you can definitely check out uh, MLU or Machine Learning University on YouTube. Uh, that's through Amazon and they have several courses uh, out there as well. Ooh, I learned something new again today, Machine Learning University. This, you're, gonna, you're keeping like literally my whole weekends occupied. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. That's good to know. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's what's so fascinating about the space, isn't it? Like there's always something out there for you to learn something you can, you know, access. And it's up to us, right? Up to humans at the end of the day to figure out what we can do with information that we have with the tools that are at our disposal. So to that, I do want to ask you, so earlier you talked about killer robots. I actually had to chuckle because that was the one <laughs> big cultural difference. I remember when I moved from Asia to the U.S. because, you know, I grew up with little robots, cartoon, little robot helpers. It's always a really positive experience or, or we're always allowed to believe that robots are there to help us. I came to the US, everything is about the robots gonna take over the world and the robots gonna become evil and, and destroy things. So I, I noticed that little 
subtle, not so subtle, cultural differences in perception of technology. But coming back to real world, what do you think, seeing how the space has evolved, what are the two things that you think are the most important right now that people should be focused more on? Not about killer robots, but you know, practical things. And some, what are some of the biggest challenges that that are ahead of us that we should really think about tackling? Yeah, that I, I'm glad you you mentioned that because um, you know we're the world is global, and there are so many different regions and uh, cultures and approaches to uh, responsible AI, and uh, we think about policy, even public policy. Uh, we work across borders. Um, we have teams in Europe, teams in Asia, Africa, et cetera. And there are so many uh, nuances, as you mentioned, to uh, how we approach this, how we put policies in place to enforce and also, um, you know, regulate some of the things that, you know, people like these people are concerned about technology uh, doing and taking over. And so I know that I've, grew up here. And I know that uh, oftentimes, when people don't see themselves in the in the technology realm, they don't see themselves uh, in the technology rooms, then they often fear are those people looking out for my best interest or my community's best interest. And so uh, that's one reason why uh, for many years, many uh, different groups, uh, especially minority groups, unrepresented groups in technology have feared the technology and what it could do because they just it's because of lack of um you know just lack of understanding lack of access in a lot of ways and also the history behind you know <laughs> how this country has used certain things against certain uh communities in the past and so uh the concerns are definitely understandable uh in some situations they are warranted and i think it's our uh, uh it's our responsibility as a big company and any large company uh, to do what they can to help continue to educate people. I think that a, a lot of the issues with fairness and biases could be resolved if we just had more diverse technical teams and more diverse people uh, at the table when the technology is being developed. Um, and not just when it's being developed, but pulling those people in via focus groups as well. Um, we may not be able to hire every type of group, every type of ethnicity, gender, et cetera, and even the intersections of those on our tech teams. But we can reach out to different groups like the ACLU, the NAACP, um, different communities, and uh, just get more buy-in to uh, you know, what these people are concerned about, uh, what they would like to see. And, um, and also education in a way that gives them access to the technology too, which again is why I think with the the new move of generative AI has been, uh, you know, very uh, uh, encouraging to me and hopeful that we now have uh, more people getting access to it. Um, but we also educate people on the limitations technology, specifically curve some of the concerns, and, and the concerns are valid. There's concerns with uh, what we call toxicity. Toxicity is uh, when some of these tools can generate. Uh, harmful content towards certain groups or certain subgroups. Uh, we also have 
what we call hallucinations. Um, sometimes the technology and, and by nature of generative AI, it is by nature designed to fill in gaps with fake information that follows a previous pattern. And so you'll see hallucinations. If people aren't aware that this can happen, then they may be able, they may use the technology uh, in a way that uh, will provide false information um, and challenge the, the fidelity of the, the results that's coming out of that tool. Um, and then of course, another really uh, huge legal question now is the, the intellectual property. Uh, who owns this thing that was created from uh, content that was already in existence? Um, but we are, it's hard to credit it back to those people, uh, given the way that these large models are created, these foundation models are created. And so uh, there's a big question, just because information is on the internet, does that mean you can use it? Does that mean you can train on it? Um, just because I can see it, just does it mean I can do something with it? And also uh, uh, a lot of concerns in the academic bots and chat GBT to write papers and submit papers. And um, do we have guardrails and plagiarism filters in place to filter out that information to help determine if it's been used before? Um, and how do we credit it back to the originators? And so there's, there's so much more innovation to happen on top of what's already happened. And it's, it's almost scary how fast we've moved, uh, but we still have to catch up with these concerns and and just make sure that we're operating again in that responsible way. I I cannot agree more. I feel like it's going so fast that we are constantly playing catch up um, in that sense. And so to that, before we close, I do want to ask you something because this is something that our industry in particular, financial services, that's I hear that all the time is executives trying to find what is the best way for financial institutions to explore how can we use AI in a safe manner? Now, we've used AI quite a bit a lot of times in the backend automation process, but now that you know the technology is evolving more and more, we want to start exploring different use cases that we can leverage the technology for. But what is a safe way of doing it without, let's say, impacting the trust and the confidence that consumers have with us? It's like a billion dollar yes, question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we're all, I, I, this, these areas are so primitive now, um, which is funny because in, in my world, I've been doing AI for over a decade or so now, uh, trying not to date myself, but, um, you know, it's like the technology has been there, right? So, so why now? Why is everyone uh, here now asking these questions? Why haven't we done this? 10 plus years ago. And so uh, because we have more applications, because we have more use cases, uh, there will be uh, more stakeholders involved. We mentioned public policy teams, we mentioned government, uh, those putting these policies in place. How do we enforce these policies? Uh, once, once technology, which is software, at the end of the day, it's software. Once it's released into the open source world, it's really extremely hard to one, track who's using it, and then two, how do you enforce certain things around how they're using it? And it, it really becomes a, a difficult issue. So it's not trivial, the answer. <clears throat> uh, but again, with government stepping in with certain compliances now in place, especially for fintech companies, um, 
certain rules around your model explainability, uh, more uh, compliances in place for privacy and security. You know, this idea of a risk assessment, because I know that it's very difficult to get 100% accuracy across the board for everyone, for every single data set, for every single use case. So you have to be very specific about what, what are we talking about? What are we targeting? And, and let's make sure we've explored all the possible worst cases in that area and continue to explore it because it's, it's never a one and done. It's always an iterative cycle. And so I think um, these are the things that we're doing. It's not, uh, okay, this is the goal. It can be reached. It's more like a, a, a vision or a mission that you continue to try to reach. And uh, we can only provide guidance and uh, certain assessments around how to best move forward. Uh, but it's ultimately a responsibility. It's a shared responsibility across everyone. A shared responsibility with a specific mission and a vision of how the technology should use. I love this conversation and I wish we could just keep going and going. And I think we need to do a repeat of this because I still have so many things I want to ask you. Um, but this is so enlightening and I really, really do appreciate it. If our audience wants to reach out to you more to learn more about what you do, um, where where can they come find you? Yeah, so I'm definitely available on LinkedIn. Uh, my name, Nashley Cephas. I'm the only Nashley Cephas on there. Uh, I'm also on, on all the other social platforms, uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, I think it's pretty. I'm pretty easy to find, and so um, I'm I'm happy to. Uh, talk more, especially interested in uh, anything particular on AWS side. We we have a whole team of people that uh, can help with these different uh, aspects of responsible AI. All right. So before we close, I know I said that before. Let's. I want to ask you something. What gets you the most excited for this new year and perhaps beyond? I know I have my own wish list of things I get excited about, but I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. What, gets, what do you most look forward to? So I, I'm excited about uh, how these new, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways, uh, one on the technical side and then one on the uh, more advocacy side. Um, evangelism side. So as far as the technology, uh, I'm excited about the new chips that are coming into play um, to help us better train our own foundation models. And so uh, with that comes easier access for others to train their own foundation models, um, which again, we're, we're considering, you know, doing it in a responsible way. Uh, and if we are continuing to educate people on that, uh, then again, I'm, I'm always excited about technology being in the hands of more people and more people having access to it. And these chips are a way, uh, are one way to go about doing that. Um, I think on the advocacy side, on the evangelism side, um, the education of how do you train these models, how do you use these models, and also the applications of these models we, we've only scratched the surface uh, because when you put uh, a tool like ChatGPT in the hands of a, a mom and pop uh, barbecue restaurant, um, it can really, you, you'd be surprised what they come up with if they actually try, if they actually, uh, instead of limiting what they think about 
and just assuming uh, this is not for me, uh, this is not something that I can use, uh, and them changing that mind shift of this is a tool that I have access to, how can this help me in my everyday life? That is the difference, and I think that's what we're seeing. I have a, um, I actually have a nonprofit um, back in my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, called Bean Path, where we do that very thing. We try to show people who normally wouldn't think that the technology is for them. This is a way you can use it. This is how you can, um, you know, access it, and this is the ways that it can help you in your everyday life. And so, I think. Uh, that's what I'm most excited about. As the technology advances, so does the the access to it. I, just music to my ears. I am struggling to find the right word for it. Other than I admire what you do. I do hope there. Are, I appreciate it. Thank you. I I mean it. I hope we can have more people like you, and I can't wait to see what the next year years um what what will um what you and your team will be able to bring forth to the market thank you so much for joining us on the show today and for the rest of our listeners i i think they will be able to find you online on linkedin and social media yes yes thank you so much for having me again and i appreciate it and maybe we'll do this again sometime i very much look forward to it i would love that and we should make this in person next time. How about that? That would be oh, my be cool. wish for the new year. <laughs> <laughs> well, so thank you once again for your time today and for the rest of our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for this very special episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye.